0: What does it take to create something that never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? What does it take to change the world? This is The Swell Podcast. We're passionate about the seed of an idea and how it swells into a movement. Take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those three questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who've ventured out into the unknown on a personal journey to do something novel, innovative, creative, or disruptive. In today's episode, we chat with Mariah Hay, Chief Experience Officer at Help Scout and thought leader in human-centered design. Mariah talks about her journey into user experience, her aspirations at Help Scout, and using the right questions to solve problems rather than fulfill desires. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, sign up to our newsletter at theswellpod.com, and get in on the conversation through all of the major socials at The Swell Pod. Our first season is made in partnership with Kiln, Kiln provides flex office space solutions for teams and individuals. Their all inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy.
1: So, welcome to uh, the Swell podcast, Mariah Hay.
2: Hi, it's nice to be here.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, I think. I think uh, for our listeners, we would love to kind of take um, them back, uh, I suppose, in your journey and, and where things where, where things started for you. Uh, we, we actually know you and I, I've known you, I think, probably from like four years ago, maybe, maybe longer than that. Uh, when I arrived in uh, the States, uh, you were good enough to spend some time uh, chatting to me and talking to me. And I think I spent a week with your teams uh, learning about your customer Obsession, uh, your ability to be able to get in front of the customers and understand what they needed, and so I watched and observed and listened, and uh, yeah, I was blown away by by the fact that you did it and you did it regularly and you learned from those interviews. So I'm sure we'll get there. You know later on in in this this podcast interview. But for our listeners, it'd be great to just hear your story where it actually all began for you. Uh, What did you study or what maybe what you were interested in before you studied and how you find your way to to where you are now?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd like to normally start with the fact that I was a daughter of two artists and art educators. And I just figured I'd be an artist too. And I I grew up around studios and materials and I love to build things, I think. But the the biggest thing that was misaligned for me um, is I like to solve problems with what I built rather than pose questions, which is what art typically is. And so I started my undergraduate college career pursuing a studio art degree. And my professors were like, you're just a bad artist. And I'm like, but look at this shelf. Isn't this a great shelf? Like, It solves all these problems. Until one day I had um, one of my professors say, have you ever heard of product design? And I said, what's product design? And back then product design was physical product design. This was before the app store, before the iPhone, um, back in the dinosaur days. And I started looking into product design at the library and started learning about industrial design and architecture and urban planning and really the philosophy of how you uncover and then solve problems for humans. And I moved, I actually started out as a physical product designer, my first job out of grad school. I I went and got an MFA in industrial design after that. Um, Savannah College of Art and Design's graduate program took pity on me and gave me some undergraduate requirements and um, because I had, pretty much finished my undergraduate education when I discovered design. And uh, out of grad school, I started designing luggage and business cases for a company called Briggs & Riley Travelware that has a 100% guarantee on its product. And you can imagine luggage gets quite a beating. And if you don't design it properly, well, it's going to cost your company a lot of money. So you start out solving both business problems and user problems. And um, myself and I think a lot of other people in the physical product community segued into Digital, digital products. Um, a little bit, a couple of years trailing the B two C app market launch on iTunes. For the first time in history, um, a, more people were choosing their own applications than businesses choosing them for people to use them for business purposes. And so now, user experience is kind of quite important. And so the skill set that I loved, solving problems, understanding and solving problems for humans, um, actually equated into cash in pockets when it came to people's applications. So that's kind of what my journey was and, and where I started.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I think, you know, it, I, I, did, I, I first learned that you were an artist from one of these other podcasts that we listened to. And I was fascinated by that because I, uh, so for me, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I, I really enjoy films. I, I would consider myself you know, at at some time, you know, an artist, but not at all times. But, um, you know, it's interesting because I think you, you mentioned like the idea of solving problems and, and as opposed to asking questions, but I'm wondering, I guess, if we were to then bridge into into the idea of human centricity, you know, how did your, your art background, your artist background, the idea of posing questions, kind of help you in a way that, maybe uniquely put you in the right position for human-centered organizations and design?
2: That that is a great question. If I had to kind of re-examine my background in in studio art, I would say that it was the the thing that translated for me was the fearlessness in the making. So if if you master different mediums, paint, sculpture, wood, metal, you know, you can, I I am an excellent fabricator. I can probably either make or tell you how to make just about anything, building whatever around us product. Um, and so if you, if you know your mediums inside and out, then it is, that's the easy, it'll make you fearless in solving the problem. But actually the finding of the problem was the thing that I wasn't getting in the art Um, because there's a lot of social commentary in art. It's usually coming from a person's personal experience, and design is the opposite. Design is never about the person creating. Design is about the person you're finding and creating for, so I think that between my love of the going and finding the problems, the research, the sociology, um, human studies, it's a science, and then taking this really meaty problem and then being fearless in your approach to how do you apply technology to it? How do you apply humans to it? How do you build businesses to go solve these things for people day in and day out? It's that fearlessness in the making that I think I learned in art and has translated into what I do in user experience design and technical building.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, I'll even say in one of these other podcasts, and it may have just kind of come out naturally, I'm not sure, but you even said uh, you were talking about um, that that moment where you said, as an artist, I had nothing to say. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if, you, like, if that was a conscious thing that you said or if it just kind of slipped out, but it, it's so interesting that juxtaposition for me is you know, I, I I agree with that. I think an artist has to have something to say, but when you relate that back to human centricity, it's really about what, what your customers are saying, what other humans are saying and how you ultimately, as you mentioned, you kind of discover, discover the problems in that. And I think there's, there's something beautiful about that, that contradiction, I guess. I don't know.
2: It's true. I didn't have much to say as an artist.
0: I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but What's interesting is you kind of found this this beautiful this beautiful space of human centered design and 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 I think you have a lot to say about that and that's what we're really excited about and I think I don't know if 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 maybe you could just kind of give a brief overview because I think we have a pretty diverse we potentially have a pretty diverse uh, audience for something like this can you just help people understand exactly what that what this actually means, human-centered design, human centricity, even human-centered orgs. Um, but yeah, maybe just yeah. a brief overview.
2: I'd be happy to. In my mind, human-centered design involves two practices um, of the person that's doing it, finding a problem and solving a problem. And in the context of digital development, which is how I apply it now as a professional, it is um, empowering, Uh, organizations, teams, and individuals with the practices to go find those problems, and finding those problems looks like looking at data in products that already exist, going in and talking to people in a qualitative way to understand what are the barriers that they currently face in whatever they're trying to do, and really identifying those things. So qualitative and quantitative research, problem finding, and, and synthesizing that research. It's not enough to just do the research. You actually have to translate it into something that is potentially actionable. And then in the context of business, once you find the problems to be solved, not all of those problems should be solved by a particular business, by you know, looking at the market you're trying to grow into and your go-to-market resources with sales and marketing. And so contextually, you're kind of putting this puzzle piece, all these puzzle pieces together. Um, and then you actually figure all of that out. Then you start doing what I think is even harder, which is the building of it. Technology moves so fast. We have so many tools, languages, frameworks and processes um, in digital development at our disposal. Um, It's exponentially growing and now, all of a sudden, we need to be able to solve these problems using all of those things at our disposal for people and get them into the people's hands. So And then see if it succeeds. And rinse and repeat very quickly and iteratively to keep up with the pace of change. So it's um, it's a monumental task to um, take on, which is probably one of the reasons why I also love that, because that in and of itself is also problem solving. Now, in the context of um, what I do now as a leader is not only defining the practices, but enabling teams of people. Who are the right people? Where is the intersection? What skills do they need? Um, How do I empower them with the business vision, but enable them to go solve problems for the teams? Um, We're kind of moving from a world where leaders used to tell teams what to go build and teams would just take, take orders and go and build them. But very rarely are those leaders doing the research needed to um, decide what problems need to be solved or really understand what people are suffering. And then you spend all of this time building something and then it kind of falls flat or doesn't really do what you want, which is demotivating for individual contributors. And so it's my job to set people up to be successful in these endeavors now. And human centricity has to be at the core of all of this stuff. Otherwise you're just guessing at what you're building and it may or may not you know, work
0: the way you want it to yeah yeah i'd love to get your perspective on this then because i i guess this is one of the things that that i think about sometimes not not often but it's this idea of okay okay so i love i love discovering like the idea of discovering the problem with with the actual user you know that's that's integral um but of, the thing that pops into my mind, and I don't necessarily, like, I'm, I'm, this is where I'm interested in getting your perspective is like, you know, if you go back to like the Model T and that, that, that thing that everybody says, is, you know, if, if you ask Ford what, what, what the customer wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? So when you think about that, like, how do you, how do you, how do you, I guess, weigh this idea of, the customer's telling me we want this and we also, so, and then also your own, your own opinions and your own, your own biases and, and, and perspective on that, like, Yeah. I don't know. How do you find space for that in human centered design?
2: You don't ask the customer what they want. You ask the customer about what is hard for them. What's tripping Mm. them up. What are they trying to accomplish? So if you, to use the analogy with Ford and the model T, if you ask the customer what they want, they'll tell you they want a faster horse. But if you ask the customer what problem they're trying to solve, they'll tell you they're trying to get from point A to point B faster. And if you as a researcher are asking the right questions around, oh, they're trying to get from point A to point B faster, it's not about a horse anymore. It's about how do you go somewhere in the most expeditious way possible? And so then you can start to imagine things like the car because you're looking at the technology at your disposal, which is combustible engines. And so it's my job and the job of my teams to be able to ask our users not what they want, but what are they trying to accomplish and really like do like figure that out because then we can be creative with the technology at our disposal and do it in a faster, better way. So it really makes, you know, something that was a huge pain point in their life, not so painful anymore, which by the way, is why people pay for things. You have to really be solving the problem. Otherwise, like, it's just a novelty thing.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad that you made that distinction. I think, you know, it's easy to just immediately, probably go and, and, and ask, you know, well, what, 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 I don't know, like, what do you want? Right. But I I love that. Like, you know, what, what, what is actually making your day more difficult than, but I guess that goes back to the idea of, you know, I guess at the root of your interaction with customers and the importance of the kinds of questions you're asking. um, Yeah. Is there, how, how, so, uh, how, how is the, if if anybody was going to go and apply or try to, you know, from from the from the most micro level, somebody was speaking with a customer, right? Like, what would you say if they were about to start? um, you know, this, this kind of interview or, or discussion with, with a customer. Like I love starting with trying to identify the problem and, but could you provide any other, any other specific guidance on maybe the types of questions that you ask, like really open-ended questions or very specific and targeted questions. And I guess it depends on where you are with your product at that point in time too, but yeah.
2: It depends on what you want to learn. I think, so I, there's this great book. It's in its second edition now. It's like a textbook. It is the best resource for any qualitative research. Um, it is called Observing the User Experience, and its you can look at the Amazon search and find it easily. Um, and it goes through any kind of qualitative technique you would want to in order to get to the root of your problem. To answer your question about interviewing specifically, when I'm looking and, and coaching um, my teams and how they're going and talking to users um, and people, it is really get clear on what you're trying to like, what do you need to know from this person by the end of the interview? And it's usually like three or four specific things if you're doing a hour interview. And then you build your whole question set around the learning uh, those things from people. And you can use a technique called um, non-directed interviewing or non-biased interviewing, which really enables you to ask short, open-ended questions to get to the root of learning those things and if by the end of the interview you can go oh yeah um you can tell me the answer to those original things you wanted to learn um, you've done your job as an interviewer and if you can't tell me well then it was a not a great interview and you probably need to revisit your questions um, of course you know these are techniques that you you learn and you build over time um, but there are very like systematic ways of handling these interviews. And I myself am going through an exercise right now with, um, with my CEO. When I came in to help scout seven months ago, I said, hey, you know, we kind of sell our software which is customer support uh, software that cost- most, it's, it's a lot of customer support teams use it, but you'd be surprised how many other people need shared inbox use cases and aren't customer support teams that use it. And, uh, and I said, we need to get more specific about who we're gonna go build this for. And I need you and I to go talk to people and understand what are the different use cases? Like, how do why are they using help scout? What problems are they trying to solve with it? What problems are they solving? What problems aren't they solving? And then looking at their industry, team size, all of this stuff. And the big thing that I need to come out of the interview with in this particular persona research is how to position our product in the market um, for people that really talks about the value that they're they're getting for it. So when we launch new marketing campaigns, we can say, here are the value propositions and we're speaking to the right audience. And so I have a a script that I go through and sometimes you're jumping around because you're trying to have a fluid conversation, but by the end of the interview, I need to know the answers to all of these questions, whether I'm skipping around or not. And I'm asking them things like, tell me about your philosophy on customer research. Like who are your customers that you're serving usually through Help Scout? Um, What are the most important things to them? Um, What are the goals of your team? Like, and so I go through all these things and by the end of the interview, I feel like I know exactly how their team operates, what they're trying to do, what kind of value we provide to them, what we don't provide to them um, and their philosophy. And you start to see these patterns. So one of the patterns um, that I'm seeing with our users and our teams that buy Help Scout is, they they don't want to just do customer support as quickly as possible. They want to have a a, a, rela- a interaction with their customer that feels personal. And so, how might we do that? As a, a, not only position that we do that, because that is one of our cornerstones as a, as a company. Um, but how might we continue to to develop features to enable them to do that? And so. That gives starts to give you very clear direction as to how you think about your product roadmap. So I know I've gone off on a tangent there, but um, that's why interviewing is is so darn important in trying to figure out like what problems people are trying to solve.
1: Yeah, I love. I love that. Um, Sorry, Josh, you you have another question? No, go for it. Go for it. I I think actually just listened to um, um, Change by Design for the second time. I mean, it's, it's 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 You know, amazing how how much has happened since they wrote that book 10 years ago, but um, I think one of the quotes in there is something like, you know, there's no substitute, satisfactory substitute to uh, observation. Um, I'm interested in actually what, you know, what degrees do you go to or efforts do you go to to observe, um, you know, your own uh, employees, uh, colleagues working. Uh, And also your customers, like, can you give me some examples of some, you know, the efforts that you go to to actually just observe without even necessarily asking questions?
2: Yeah, so that is um, a great tool to have in the qualitative toolbox. Um, It depends on what you're trying to learn. Sometimes you're trying to understand patterns and how people interact with their day-to-day workflow, and you can't really ask the right questions to get you that level of detail um, a perfect example for me um, a couple of jobs ago I worked for a company leading UX um, called AMC health and they were a telemedicine and telemonitoring platform and I was designing a new um, a new application for our the, for our users who would use the patients to record their health data and then on the, on the flip side that data gets reported to a team of, of nurses and clinicians who read that data and so um, we felt like it was really important to go watch our nurses working using our software in the context of their workspace to see what else they were doing that we were missing. Were they writing things on Post-its? Were they copying things to Word docs? Stuff that is so detailed and automatic if you've done a job for a while, it's very difficult to ask somebody to recall like excruciating detail of how they go through their workday. So we went and we did observation of like, maybe a dozen different nurses in different settings. And we started to see patterns around workarounds that they were doing in their day-to-day workflow, things that our platform wasn't doing, weird side hacks that they were doing for using our software for. So in situations like that, I think it's it's really important for teams to invest a little more time and go do that observation um, because there's no other way to really uncover patterns like that.
1: Yeah, no, I can imagine that. I remember even listening to your interviews when people, you know, you were really observing people using a certain feature or a certain functionality, and and, and they would they would ask you a question, <laughs> um, and you used to say back to them, "Well, what do you think? You know, where, what, why, wh- why did you do that, or what do you think you should do next?" Um, I mean, no, that's not just observing, but it's really trying to say, "Look, we just, we just want to." watch we don't we don't want to tell you what to do we don't want to tell you why you should do it um and i think that was powerful um example of that um i, I might go on a sidetrack here but i'm kind of interested in two things right first of all what did you observe re- like josh you or, or mariah in observing anything in your life like could be your family could be you know it could be someone in public i don't know just observing something um i don't know if you do that on a regular basis where you re- kind of think oh how strange why do people do that do it that way um and it, uh, anyway i'm going to throw that out there in case you have something do you have something josh <laughs> what was the last time you observed something that didn't make any sense or, or anything i don't know i've got i've got loads of examples of things well, the, that just don't make sense let's have let's have you go first and i'll, I'll think about it <laughs> oh gosh now now i'm gonna go blank but um no I, you just see nonsensical stuff even in business right um where you make phone calls and you or, or you observe in a queue line in in a, in a dealership and you're just seeing questions being asked or not being asked or you know just in fact, one, I'm going to say, I have to edit this one out. I'm not sure if it's making any sense now, but no, I mean, I went into the mail room uh, all the way down into the mail room and the, the, I watched like a line of 20 people trying to get the, the, the mail from the mail lady. Uh, and eventually I got there and they were just asking the same questions that they could have. In fact, all, all, a load of the questions were things that they could have dealt with over the phone. They could have dealt with online. They could have dealt with it in a million different ways, but they were, they were just doing it in the way that they've always done it. I don't know. That's a really bad example. But you just, you just watch things that don't make sense and you observe them and people have observed them for years, but no one's ever done anything to challenge a status quo. Anyway, bad example. Anything better that you can come up with?
2: (laughs) Oh, Oh, go ahead. No,
1: go go for it, go for
2: it. know it's funny. um, You're right, you can never turn it off. Like if you do any kind of cultural anthropology as part of your work, like it's just, you can never turn it off. And um, even the way I learn about new people, friends, colleagues, um say like so my partner uh domestic partner joe and i recently moved here to georgia and we're we're meeting the odd new neighbor here and there and we'll we'll leave a situation like having had a conversation with them and he'll joke that he's like how'd that interview go with that user because i'm like he's like that's how you ask questions of people like the same way you do in situations where you're trying to learn about somebody from like a cultural anthropology perspective for a a product i'm working on um, but I think that you know, you do observe things and having I used to work in healthcare. Uh, healthcare has a lot of process and procedure. And whenever I go into a doctor's office, I watch how things work. And um, and you'd be surprised, like sometimes there's stuff that doesn't make sense to us as the, the observer. And when you dig into asking the why, it starts to make sense. So for example, if you ever get surgery, you will literally have seven different people ask you the exact same question mm. as you are moving towards surgery. And it is because that thing is so crucial that they don't F it up, that they will do that that many times. And to you, it drives you crazy. But when you think about it, like you're only going through surgery once. And so it's it's a hassle to you, but it's, it's crucial to you being alive at the end of it. So, um, but you wouldn't know that unless uh, you kind of knew the medical rationale behind it necessarily. So otherwise you're like, well, why didn't they just put it on my chart? And like, everybody just reads it. Well, because you don't want a single like point of failure so anyway it's fascinating you're right it you can't you can't really turn it off
0: <laughs> that's an interesting example yeah i i so my uh, a couple of years ago my dad had a heart attack and i remember that specifically like even you know it's just a lot of the same questions over and over and over again it's just kind of like yeah it, I think you know I I can't think of another another good example as far as like me looking at like uh like weird like just stuff that I can't understand like out in out in the world. I guess I I mean I, if I was to really think about it like you know I I know when 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 covid hit, right? There was the all of a sudden everybody's virtual and everybody now has has pressure. Spencer you probably know where I'm going with this, but everybody all of a sudden feels pressure to to have their, to have their video on, right. You have to have your video on. We're all in these video meetings. And I've always had this really big problem with like, with like green screens. Like I, especially like when you're in zoom or, or WebEx or whatever these things are. And I, you know, I, I just like, for me, there was always this really kind of intense pressure to have my video on, but I know I didn't want to put on a green screen. And, and actually I'm in an unfinished basement right now. And I was like, I'm not happy with how this is right now. I don't want to use green screen. I don't, I I, I have to have my video on. Um, and so I built, basically I just built this wall right here. It's complete fake wall, but I was like, I'm not dealing with this problem anymore. So I tried to go off and solve it. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I turn the camera, you'd see unfinished basement, but yeah, anyway.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so before we just kind of choose a direction to to maybe go go Actually, down, I, oh, go for I, it.
0: I, I do have a question actually, because uh, so Mariah, you mentioned your, your qualitative uh, toolbox. I'm interested to know what is in a quantitative uh, toolbox uh, for someone like you.
2: Yeah, quantitative toolbox, that's an interesting one. I think that's the thing that is, um, these are newer practices that are specific to the medium of digital, whereas the qualitative stuff is not specific to that. And it's been around for a long time. I think it's been developed a lot more the quantitative also is dependent upon the technology that we have at our disposal. So it's continuing to rapidly evolve. But it can be, there are some basic things that um, you have to make sure that no matter how you do it, you are observing in a digital product to make sure it's working. Um, and here, this is your, your quantitative skill set. It is, you know, if a, if a product's trying to create an outcome for a user to solve a problem, as a team, how do you measure that? What are the points that you have to look at? Um, What is the user behavior? What are you expecting them to do as they move through an experience to solve their problem? And then you've got to go in and watch those things. And that can be very easy to do or it can be very hard to do depending on your tech stack. Um, There are a variety of tools out there that constantly change that can either do screen capture or event tracking. Um, But all of those things, like at its core, if you're not doing that, you don't know if what you've put out there is actually solving the problem. And the beauty of working in, you know, software and digital is that it is very, very easy to iterate through things. Unlike the world that I cut my teeth in, physical product, where if you design a cockpit for a G650 jet, it's going to be that way for 20 years. Like, you're not changing it next month. But with digital, we have this this opportunity to do these small, quick iterations and do A-B testing and, all kinds of stuff. So I would encourage anybody who is um, who is listening to make sure that you know what outcome you're trying to create, which is what problem are you trying to solve? How do you think it should look? And then you have to get specific about measuring it in some way, shape, or form. I have book recommendation number two. There's another <laughs> textbook um, called uh, Measuring the User Experience. It's by a different set of authors. But it is every single possible way you could think about measuring. Um, quantitative data on a product once it's out there so I'm not as good at that one because um, you know the opportunity to measure things has only been around so long for me personally and professionally and um, and I feel like there's a lot there's a lot of really interesting data folks out there that like this is the nerd out on this stuff my partner is a data scientist so I don't hold a candle to his, his skill set um, but it, it is just the basic being able to know what data you need.
0: Is, that's, a, I, that's really interesting uh, that your husband's also a data scientist because at least in my experience, I, I've, I've noticed there is this really strong push and pull between do we have enough quantitative data and qualitative data? I mean, there, I mean there's these, these two things and I think there is the scale is heavily weighted at least from what I've, from what I've noticed in, in a lot of businesses, like what is the qualitative, right? Uh, for me, though, like, I and I, so I, I, I actually let me go back to what you said. So like the idea of accomplishing a specific goal or solving the problem is, is one way that you know, if you're successful or not, but, you know, I'm interested to know, I guess, when, if, if you were to start to look at emotion, and, and how something makes somebody feel, you know, and, and, and understanding that from a, from a qualitative or a, a qualitative side of things. And, 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 yeah, I'm interested, I guess, in your thoughts on that balance between qualitative and quantitative, and then also, you know, how you look at the emotional connection or the emotional relevancy of, of what it is that you're, that you're developing?
2: That's a great question. It's a common question. And I think that they are two halves of a whole. You, yeah. One without the other leaves you blind in some way. Um, quantitative data can show you patterns and what is happening. Qualitative data can tell you why it's happening. So for example, if you're working in a mature software product, And you're tracking all your stuff and you see some odd funky behavior and you're like that's strange you'll never get the answer like why is that happening but if you then go and you talk to like six or ten users that have been doing exhibiting that pattern you will find out very quickly why they're doing that and maybe it's the same or maybe they have different reasons but either way then you have the whole picture and you can decide is this something that we want to change or solve or whatever um i think that it's also important to take into consideration when weighing the balance of how much qualitative versus how much quantitative and how they go together, it depends on where you are in your life cycle. If Mm -hmm. you have never designed a product and you don't really know who your user is necessarily, you have like a hypothesis, you have to really, you have no quantitative data to play with. You only have qualitative. And so then you start talking to the people who you think have this problem potentially um, to start to do initial exploration. And then you can create some kind, when you have enough information to create a prototype to like throw it out there, then you can start to gather qualitative or quantitative. Is it performing at scale like we think it will? And those quick iteration cycles is all is what startup companies have to do in order to see, do we have a product market fit here? But you can't do it without both sides of the coin. Um, I think a mistake that sometimes more entrenched software, um, teams do is if they over-rotate on qualitative, they might be missing their big picture of what is actually happening. So you have to, you have to just weigh that depending on what questions are you trying to answer, whether it's more like what is happening or why is it happening?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess what popped into my head then is, it goes back to, I guess, kind of discovering the problem and validating validating what that is and why that's a problem. And I, what it made me think of is, okay, so I, I thought back to Pluralsight and I remember seeing like discovery team like, and hearing, I can't even remember the percentage of time, but for some reason, 50% is popping into my mind that like 50% of the time they, these teams are actually doing discovery with customers. Was that, is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think that they're either planning it or executing it or synthesizing it or designing from it. Like, well, that's like, that's pretty much their whole job, but they're, they're overlapping quite a bit. So usually I would say product managers and product designers spend about 50% of their job overlaps and they're doing a lot of these things together.
0: Okay. So what happens then let's say, you know, I think this is a problem. Um, and I know you have to probably go off and validate it, right? So like, I believe that I've identified a problem that might solve a customer's needs, right? Or, or, or actually be a problem. Like, um, you know, is it, is it simply just, well, okay, so how do I, how do I put this into, a, into some form that I can then test it and validate it? Or do you actually just simply validate the problem that, that you're anticipating? Or yeah, I don't know. In, in the instance, I guess, when somebody... Within your companies, you know, says, I believe that this is a problem. The next step is then just simply just, yeah, I don't know. How do you, how how do you validate it at that point? Is it? So
2: I, I challenge my teams to look for, because we work in a software that's been around for nine years, we get a lot of signals from, from customers and we work very closely with our customer support team who is excellent by the way. I mean, we're a customer support software platform. And if we didn't have like the best customer support <laughs> running <laughs> off of it, it would look pretty bad for the company. Um, but they listen to our customers a lot and they um, they actually use uh, Jira to track code and track like incoming things. So if somebody comes to us and said, hey, we need an integration, we need our platform to integrate with Facebook so that our users um, can get you like, so Facebook can feed into their shared inbox in the help scout platform. And well, I, my next question is, okay, cool. Where did we hear it from? How many people did we hear it from? How many people is that compared to other things that we're hearing? And so then we can start to rank a level of magnitude around this particular thing that people are asking for. And I know I've worked with tons of sales teams. Um, sales gets the front line of like, win-loss, they know like, and if they're starting to consistently lose sales because we don't have something specific, a salesperson might make a lot of noise and say, you need to go build this because I'm losing sales because it's money in their pocket, right? But the reality is you might have a very loud salesperson that's had three people tell them that. And -hmm. so they're like, everybody needs this, but being able to track on the sales side, win-losses and look at that, look at the quantitative data around it, it really helps a product team understand like what we should go after next and tell the story back to the customer support team, back to the sales team around, well, we're not going to work on those things because actually when you look at the data, this thing is so much bigger over here and totally hear you. this is a problem, but we're not going to work on it yet. It's no longer a personal like, Oh, the product team never listens to us. It's a, Oh, I understand the data. And this is how they're making those decisions. So it becomes very defensible at that point. Um, That being said, that doesn't cover the, hey, what if we have a new product idea, something that doesn't exist yet and customers aren't necessarily asking for it. Um, it could be, you You could hire a new team to like go after that. And that's when you get very much into qualitative land mm. when you're trying to validate, uh, is this something that we should be looking at? Um, a perfect example is when I worked at Pluralsight, one of the first net new teams I hired was a team to look at, um so Pluralsight is a technology training platform and we use a lot of contractors to create these really cool courses on C# or you know Python or whatever data science or development topics um and we we have a sneaking suspicion people that create content in addition to being professionals also create content outside of Pluralsight just like this podcast and we said okay, if we think our our people are creating content outside of the platform, should it be in our platform? Is this user generated content, something that we can bring into our ecosystem to help tech learners? And I sent a team out and I said, go learn about this. Like this is a a direction that we could potentially chase down. And they went and did all the research and they came back to me and they said, actually only about 5% of your users actually create content, but One thing they are doing that we're not addressing is they are Googling other people's content all day long to do their jobs, which is called performance support style content, which our platform at Pluralsight at the time was not set up to do. We had long form video content. And so suddenly we're like, there's this whole use case over here that if we just arranged our library differently, it might be able to satisfy both things. And so that started a whole new conversation around um, written content and small form content and this whole other world. But had we not given the team the space and the permission, we didn't ask them to go validate that we had to start bringing user-generated content into our platform. We asked them to go, is this a thing? And so I think companies that are more successful approach it like that, rather than, you know, the CEO being like, we're going to go build a user-generated content platform. Because at the time they like, they thought oh, if we give everybody like a podcasting blogging tool, people would just make all of this like free content for us. But had we done that, instead of sending a team to go investigate it, we would have lost a lot of money.
0: Mm. Yeah. I love that example. Um, Spencer, do you, you have a question? I, 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 no, I, I, I just I find yeah. it it's
1: super interesting that, I mean, yeah. first of all, maybe your CEO, or whoever thought they knew what the problem was, but they yeah. trusted the process. They trusted you uh, and the teams to go and find out the unknown, right? And that's what you found out. You found something that you didn't realize that you brought back. Totally. I'm interested to know what the impact of of that was um, as well.
2: It ended up creating a new written product line that sat outside of our paywall. So it could show up in people's organic Google searches and not only give them what they need, but draw people back to our larger platform. So
1: that's what it turned into. Nice. Nice. Well, I was going to ask you a bit more about help scout, but Josh, were you, (laughs) did you have another question before I do that? Well,
0: yeah, I, well maybe maybe we can ask this question because I think it blends really well into into Help Scout but I think you know so you've gone from at least um, you know if, if we were just to say from PluralSight to Help Scout and and taking you know being with PluralSight from from what it was when you joined to what it became when you left and now to and now to Help Scout like building organizations of of human centered design and 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 scaling that in in a way that makes it possible, I'd love to know kind of that that journey and some of the some of the challenges and some of the learnings that you take away, and then we can you know maybe dive into a little bit more about Help Scout. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm happy to answer that. Um, so I joined joined Site at the end of 2015 as a product leader, and I had product design and product managers reporting up to me, and there were several other leaders um, in the company as well in the same role. We had a team of like. 18 um, combined product managers and product designers. And we knew we were going to be on this growth trajectory as a company. We wanted to IPO at some point. We wanted to keep getting bigger and bigger. And um, my whole goal when I decided to join Pluralsight was, so I ran into Nate, who was on one of your earlier podcasts, Nate Walkingshaw. And um, I was speaking at a conference about how you do human-centered design, how you bring you know, good product practices into your organization and what that looks like, just basic stuff. Now you'd see that and be like, oh, we all know that. But back then nobody was doing it. And uh, Nate came up to me afterwards and he's like, I'm doing that, I'm doing that at this company in Utah called Plural Site, and you should totally come like, come join us. And I didn't really believe him. Cause like I said, nobody was doing it which is why I was speaking about it. Um, but he convinced me to come hang out with his teams and within a couple of days, I was like, holy cow, like he actually has the permission of the CEO to run product in the way that I always thought product should be run. And, and so I decided that I'd go join the team and I moved to Salt Lake City in Utah. And the, the biggest joy of being able to work um, with that growing company was we had the resources to do it the right way. Um, We had the vision for where the company was going, which was very clear. So it was easy to be able to take product practices and like push ourselves to our runner's edge with how good can we get at doing this? And so that was, that was the joy for me personally. I could take practice and I could build, or I could start solving some of the organizational design problems, align org design with the practices, um, with the skills and the teams, with a philosophy of human centered design. And so over the about the four and a half years that I was at Pluralsight, we went from um, an organization, experience organization, which is your engineers, data folks, product managers, and product designers of about 150 people to over 500. So I was starting to tackle like internal tools. How do we hire faster? How do we um, you know, facilitate communication across teams? How do we integrate companies that we have acquired into our product? Um, and so that was kind of my next journey. Um, and I developed some real opinions about how to do that. And so um, fast forward to earlier this year, this was before coronavirus hit, but you know, I always loved how Nate came into Pluralsight and did this and built this team and made this happen. And i'm like i want to do that like that i want to sit in that seat on the executive leadership team so that i'm not only doing it for the experience org but i'm partnering with marketing i'm partnering with sales human centered design is at the center of the company and i had the help scout um, product leader position kind of pushed in front of me by a friend who i know up in boston um, who used to teach at harvard business school i would go guest lecture for her And she's like, I think this is what you've been, you know, looking for. And I wasn't really actively looking for a job. So I was was having a crisis about leaving my team and then COVID started. And anyway, it's a miracle I I, am at Help Scout. But the reason why I decided to go was like, that was the opportunity with this product leader role was to be able to go in and operate at the highest level of this company, the small company, stable company, profitable company, um, they're nine years old, 100 employees, you know, $24 million annual recurring revenue on their journey to 100. And I'm like, I can come in and like make that happen. Um, the CEO was the product guy. He was the product manager. And he was the one close to the customers already hearing their problems, solving their problems. And I came in and I said, okay, cool. There's only one of you. You now have an engineering org of 50 people. And we need product managers that can do this and bring the teams along with the journey, the cross-functional teams and get engineers involved to bring technical creativity to the table. And you know, it was just nodding heads. Like I talked to him, I talked to the head of engineering, I talked to the head of design, head of sales. And I'm like, if you want me, this is how I'm gonna do it. Um, if that doesn't work for you, please tell me because it'll be a problem. And everybody's like, no, we want this. We just don't know how to do it. So I, I came on with them in May. Um, build out a team of product managers. And not only that, but introduce qualitative and quantitative practices that are repeatable and scalable um, to these cross-functional teams, um, influencing how um, engineering delivery works. Um, you cannot not do like, you, you need to move more towards single piece workflow and anything that helps teams like Kind of rally around problems to get them across the finish line, rather than, than being like having four engineers working on four different things. So there's there's influential things there. Having design do more usability um, testing as part of the, um, the the process of development. So and then now i'm you know working on go to market strategy with marketing and sales so that we're all going after the same users and the person i'm designing features for are the people we're trying to source through marketing funnel and the people sales are trying to close and we're all on the same page with how how we connect around these customers and what they need instead of the siloedness that happens in a lot of companies and um, that's a new muscle i'm exercising but at a team like a company of 100 it feels a very approachable Um, considering I just came from like a 2000 person company where it's a little harder to like turn a boat. So we're going to get it set up now. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm really, really glad I joined the team.
0: Yeah. I love that. Is it? uh, So I have a couple questions from that, but I guess I could just say, so I, I would be interested in, and maybe you can't answer this. I don't know, but what was it that really kind of made them say, yeah, we want this. We just don't know how to do it. Like what made them want it? Like, you know, so much to, to, to completely shift, uh, the, the, the design of their organization to this, but yeah, what we, yeah. what would yeah. you say?
2: The philosophy of help scout from the very beginning, the original three co-founders who are all still at the company, one's an, en- an engineering leader, one's a CEO and one's a design leader. Um, they are product people like that's their, their heart and soul. And they're not doing this to like make a quick buck. Yes, they want a profitable, growing, healthy business, but they care so deeply about the customer. The customer has always been at the center of everything that they've designed. And you can see it in the product. It is a simple, beautiful, intuitive product that they have created. And when I talk to users in these persona interviews, everybody says that's like the differentiator between our platform and then other customer support platforms that are out there. It really considers the end user. And so it wasn't, I didn't have to do any of that work. Like they had always been there. This was just setting themselves up for the next phase of their company. And so when I told the story Mm. of like how I could do this, they find like it clicked and they could see it tangibly. They could see it where they had been kind of like spinning wheels a little bit um, in that area. Um, So. And I, it's interesting because you do need different leadership at different growth stages within companies and it just our paths happen across at the right time and this was a section of you know company growth that i'm personally very interested in so
0: that's awesome can let me so i'm this you mentioned uh and i don't mean to go back to plural site but i'm interested in kind of where you're at now with help scout in relationship to i think this problem but also on a wider perspective like the idea of vision uh, and becoming a more human centered organization. And I'm I'm wondering about like the idea of like an existential crisis where you actually question your vision, like what you're learning about your customer, you're learning enough to maybe even question your vision. Have you like, I'm not asking if if that's happening now, but like, have you are, is, are there any of these big major things that, that aren't like causing new questions or causing Help Scout to rethink certain things? And, and can you provide any examples? Every day. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's cool. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: If you're, I mean, you have to constantly be awake to what's happening and changing. And like our globe just got hit by a pandemic. I can't think of any more singularly disruptive business thing that has happened in the last 100 years. Like it makes the housing crisis in 2008 look like, oh, that was like a blip on the radar compared to this. And so you constantly, and it's the power that you are always always listening, always reevaluating, always pivoting and not painting yourself into a corner or, or holding beliefs too tightly, um, you have to t- make bets. You have to take guesses. You do so in the most informed way that you can to make the next step forward. But I think that one of the most important things I've learned is you set a vision, but you really only know the tactics like only a couple steps ahead of you, knowing that taking those steps will inform the next couple steps. And if you can get comfortable with being uncomfortable, then you can really thrive in that. But in order to do that, you have to have psychological safety in the company. People Mm -hmm. need to be able to bring these things up. You know, leaders have to empower teams to have be decision makers. And so one of the things that I'm really, working on is making sure that when vision is cast, it is the outcomes that we think we need to try to create so that the teams can go figure out how to create those outcomes, what problems need to be solved to create those outcomes for the customers, um, if they're the right outcomes in the first place. And if you can create that psychological safety and you give people this whole like, hey, we're human-centered design shop, Um, Here are the practices we abide by, like, go figure this out with like the might of your, your brain (laughs) rise to the top of like your skill level. I think that um, it's your best darn chance to be able to do that as a business, but you always have to be questioning yourself.
0: (laughs) I love that. Uh, Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's so much like even for even for the employees, I can I can imagine the autonomy and and the purpose in that, right? Like the idea of having these teams completely. Even going back to something you said a little bit earlier, being surrounded like like uh, being focused on on the actual problem, whereas I can imagine that there are teams out there that aren't necessarily as much. Maybe they're just delivering this this kind of endless backlog of things, or but there, there's so much autonomy and, and and purpose I think in that idea and. Yeah, I, yeah. So, I don't think I have a question really. Based off of that, I just, I, I, I love that, and being uncomfortable, or being comfortable, being uncomfortable is interesting. And it makes, I think, I think if there was a common theme that I at least I'm taking away from this is, you know, for me at least, I'm seeing the necessity of the qualitative and the quantitative as being the most well-informed possible. So, in the moments of the most extreme disruption or potential disruption, like you mentioned, COVID, it just gives you the best possible chance for success. Be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I don't know. I, 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 I love that message. Spencer, I'm
1: hoping that you jump in here and and ask a question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've just got a couple, a couple more, but I I do think, I mean, I I, I'm thinking slightly differently in, in the, you know, isn't it wonderful that we can work for companies and we can continue to develop and grow um, and we take our skills and, our, and the lessons we've learned from other people and from our own experiences. And you, you, you probably couldn't have done the role that you're doing right now without the experiences at Pluralsight, right? Um, and the things that you tried or learned or developed and experimented there. Um, h- how much of directed discovery do you do you bring along to help Scout? It, 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 you know, Are there just specific other lessons you learned that you now are applying to this custom, you know, the customized needs that you're seeing right now.
2: Yeah, no, um, I mean, Nate Walkingshaw's directed discovery format was the thing that like sold me on coming to Pluralsight because he took human centered practices and put them in a very loose framework that's easy for teams to pick up and start using if they have no experience doing it. And suddenly I'm in a situation where the, the PMs I'm hiring have experience being product folks in the manner that I describe around being human centered but the designers weren't really doing it. The engineers weren't really doing it. They were order takers. So suddenly I'm trying to shift half a company to start thinking in this way and approaching problems in this way. And direct to discovery gives me a really simple terminology and stages to help center people around. You know, Three easy stages, voice of customer, which is don't design yet, go figure out what the problems are. And that's qualitative and quantitative and then do whatever you want within that to learn solve those things, but solve them first then design something and put it back, back in front of people, see if it's like doing, is, is it useful, is it usable, is it delightful? And then cool, it's time to engineer, develop it and then figure out what metrics to measure, and push it out into the world. And like, I just told you that in two minutes, that's a framework that I can take, that I've taken to my org and I road showed it. Like when I got there and there were no, there was one product manager, lovely woman named Julie. Awesome, I'm glad that I get to work with her. Um, she's been a huge help. I showed her and I showed each of the engineering leaders and anybody that would listen to me, I'd be like, I'm gonna give you an overview of directed discovery. And I went into kind of more detail than I did right now and said, what do you think about it? Do you think this will work? Are there any gotchas? And this road showing of this and having these one-on-one conversations helped everybody feel like they were agreeing to this. They were part of the process. They could help, they could see the vision of it. They could share concerns with me that could help us navigate things in a way that made sense culturally for the company or, you know, things that tech stacks would prevent us from doing. Um, For example, we do very minimal event tracking right now. Well, we need to do enough to be able to see um, metrics of things being successful. So like helping engineers think about it in terms of we have to have this visibility rather than that's an extra step and I don't see the value in it. That's a nuanced but important conversation, and, and trying to get a whole organization of people that have working one way, a new leader doesn't come in and create organ re- rejection and directed discovery, and being able to describe human-centered design in that way has just been incredibly useful. And everybody's been very open to it, and have we've been experimental and tried lots of things, and we're already starting to see benefits in the product decisions and how we understand performance. Um, so it's been a huge benefit for us.
1: No, that's no, that's great. Um, super interesting to to learn more about your journey and and how you're tapping into things from the past and the things that you and that are needed there right now for for the organisations that maybe um, don't have a Mariah, <laughs> don't have a Nate, um, and maybe can't right now do what you're describing, um, what was your advice to, you know, whether that's the, I guess, maybe a, a product owner, a product manager that's just trying to, to you know, they, they, they have that, they have the desire to go learn the unknown um, and they, but they're really facing, maybe they are facing lots of uh, people that are assuming what they, you know, maybe C-suite, they already know what the problem is uh, or they think they know. I mean, how, how what's the best advice for that lone, lone product owner?
2: That is a great question. I would say that whenever people come to me, like, so as when you're a leader, people come to you and share an idea and expect you to make the change. You change this. You're the leader. You can tell people what to do. But the reality is I can tell people what to do all day long. They're going to still do it the way that they think is best. Like either out in the open or behind your back. And so the best way to make change are, is getting the people in your ecosystem to agree to experimenting with one thing at a time. And so a perfect example that I've just run into with this is one of my product managers came to me and she said, you know, we don't have tech lead roles and we're really missing a person that does X, Y, and Z on the team. And we kind of talked through that. And, and she was right. It's something that I saw when I walked in the org Um, but I tackle one hill at a time too. And that was not my hill yet. And so um, I said to her, I said, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. You're right. I think we could really benefit by like making this an official thing. I said, why don't you go talk to the engineering coach who is the engineering leader that works very closely with the team because they're kind of partners. And I said, why don't you ask Adrienne what she thinks about this? Does she feel like this is a missing thing? Is there a gap in the team? Like go crawl into her context and you all have a chat about it. And I, I could tell she was hesitant <laughs> when I told her to go do that. Because um, it's easier to tell your boss that you trust that you want something to happen rather than going and doing it yourself being empowered to go do it yourself. But I nudged her and she went and um, had that conversation with her and she came back to our PM team and she's like, oh my gosh, Adrienne thinks the exact same thing. Like we need to do this tech lead thing and we're going to try it. And so getting the people that you work closely with to try one new thing and experiment or even share an idea with them, even if it doesn't result in creating something, at least like you're planting a seed out there. Just like when I went around and I talked to every single person had all these one-on-ones around directed discovery, that was planting a seed and then watering it and then watering it and then watering it. then watering it. And suddenly you start to see sprouts coming up and people starting to do things and people starting using the same terminology. And, you know, her and Adrienne, if they go and experiment with this tech lead thing, other engineers are going to see that. Other teams are going to see that and go, oh, what are they doing? Oh, that's really useful. Oh, maybe we should try it too. So you can, you can kind of use some grassroots um, empowerment if you are not the leader telling everybody what to do. And so you can start to try things like Maybe you don't have time or bandwidth to go talk to people to validate a hypothesis that your boss has told you you're going to go build. But you can say to your boss, hey, I think it'd be really smart. Um, We're building this feature. As we launch it, we should probably measure x, y, and z to see if it's performing the way we want it to. It's a very easy, approachable way to start to wrap in some quantitative um, stuff. And it's kind of, you know, it will it probably would resonate with the person that wants that feature in the first place because they also want to see it succeed because it's their their baby right so you can kind of like pick and choose little things to start trying
1: yeah no i love that that you know just just i mean there's no shortcut is there to to these things it's just the the small nudges the go try, go have that conversation, go find out, go, maybe, maybe there is a hypothesis or experiment or some kind of thing that you could do to, to just find out what you find out. And, um, I, I think that's great advice. Um, you know, what we, what we haven't had on this, on this podcast and, uh, is is to showcase, Mariah, your really great questioning skills, <laughs> because we're interviewing you, um, and I'm not going to ask you to do that, um, but because I remember how good your questions are, and I think, um, again, I maybe I'd ask you advice for those people that, you know, I mean, they need to be curious. Maybe that's one of the key, key traits, really, to just be curious enough to go find out, but how how what was your most kind of common um advice to people to to in- improve their questioning skills their or their curiosity i mean both really
2: yeah so i like to i like to share with people first that as humans we have been taught to Communicate in the fastest way possible and not communicate the details. But if you're a design, a person creating product, you have to understand the details to really understand the problem. Um, for example, if something is burning in a building, I'm not going to run around going in the southeast corner of the western building, the carpet is on, you know, is is incinerating. I would run around screaming fire. You know, I'd pull an alarm and everything would go off. But fire doesn't really help the fire department find where the problem is. Our job is to find where the fire is and find the details about the fire. So when you ask questions of people, your goal is to get them, pull out of them the details. And it's just like we say fire when we um, communicate instead of the details. When we ask questions, we tend to ask these like big loaded questions. You might ask two questions at once. We do that a lot as humans because we're trying to like be fast about it. But if you slow down and you create really simple questions and you ask them one at a time, and then you ask why, and then you ask why. You can get people to really talk about um, something in a very detailed way, which is not normal for human communication. So if there's one skill that you can start with, I think it is being able to ask simple, short, unbiased questions that don't lead people in one way or another um, and get them to share their details with you.
1: I like it. Josh, do you have one of those killer questions that Mariah is <laughs> looking for? You're on mute, maybe. Sorry, I was
0: on mute. No, yeah, I think it's interesting because, so I, I personally am fascinated by what the parallels and, and the similarities that I see between, you know, storytelling, and, you know, and 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 user experience, right, the user journey. Like, I'm fascinated by that. Because they're so similar, you know, I think when, when we try to tell stories, ultimately, you know, we're identifying a problem and then we're ultimately trying to solve that problem by the end of the story. We're identifying a deep flaw within our main character and, and maybe a deeper, more human need that they're trying to satisfy, right? That maybe, for instance, the product is trying to help them overcome or help them satisfy, and it's what conflict are you facing along the way and what are you learning about yourself through it right like i i think it's so fascinating and so do you do you think about like do you do you think about story at all and do, when you ask these questions do you try to keep it really linear uh, in terms of the thinking i know you earlier you said you do jump around and and you know you're really ultimately finding the the depth rather than you know the destination i think is is maybe the way that i'm kind of understanding it now but yeah. What, do, you, do you think about it linearly and, and, and in terms of that journey or that story, I guess?
2: I do. Um, yeah. I think one of the keys to creating a really fluid discussion guide that you don't have to jump around is if mm. you put it in a sequential way that actually makes sense to the conversation. That being said, people are highly unpredictable and some people answer questions in short, specific ways and some people will answer your question and then talk about five other things. you don't necessarily want want to interrupt them. But I think there there are sequential ways you can think about getting somebody to walk through their experience um, in order to give you those those details for sure. That being said, I don't necessarily think about it from the storytelling angle, but you are right. There's a huge synonymous um, weight between those two. I think that... um, I do think a lot about instructional design and teaching because Mm. I taught for many years. And so I think when I put my discussion guide together, I'm thinking about um, just the the sequence of what makes sense. Because instructional design is all about, well, you would do A before you would do B. And then in order to be able to do C, you need to do both A and B. Um, And so when I get somebody to walk me through their experience, it's, it's that unpacking of what will come next and what will come next. Um, that kind of helps. It's not foolproof, but it it is helpful. And I still write down my whole discussion guide. I write out each question exactly how I'm going to say it. I mean, I've been doing this for two decades, but doing that enables you to not have to put cognitive processing towards the questions. And instead it allows you to focus on the conversation with the person to dig deeper. Um, And so I've had people poo-poo writing them down. And I'm like, no, seriously, like write out the actual question. Otherwise, you're going to have to rethink of phrasing the question every single interview you do and think of all the energy you're going to waste. So it's, it helps you stay true to the like hard work you have to do up front of that storytelling of the the discussion guide.
0: Yeah. So that that kind of blends into, I guess, another thing that I, I wasn't sure if, I, if we were going to get into, but I'm 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 glad we are. I guess so. Let's say teams do discover the, this problem, then the there's then this responsibility to to advocate for that problem and the solution and the customer and 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 I'm interested to know, especially at Help Scout, as you guys are making this this transition, you know what are you seeing like and 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 how are the teams doing i guess advocating for certain problems to be solved and advocating you know for these specific solutions or whatever right like advocating for their customers in new ways that maybe they they never have before it's interesting
2: yeah. Um, I have to say, I have never run into a situation in any company where humans are not passionate advocate, advocates for whatever they're trying to push. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whether it is like solve something for our customers or like we need this new software or whatever, like employees, there's one thing that they can do is, is be loud about things. Now, the trick to being successful in, in the loudness is also to show the magnitude in the business case. So you might go learn a customer has three you know, problems, A, B, and C, but solving A only applies to 20 customers. Solving B might apply to all customers, but it is a year's worth of work, and we're not going to be able to charge any more for it. Problem C might be the sweet spot where it's, you know, we can release it in a quarter. Um, it would really help us with how we think about our tiers and pricing and packaging. And it would provide tremendous business value to like 90% of our customers. And it is like the Goldilocks just right is how I have to get product teams, experience teams to think about selecting the thing that they're going to advocate for and then be able to tell that story of why that thing is important, not only to the customer, but to how many customers and in what context of the business.
0: Yeah. I love that. Is there, in, in your past, has there ever been any situation where Maybe there was one of the problems that you felt intrinsically motivated by, right? You're like, I'm really passionate about this, but it falls in one of those categories that was like, well, you know, it's it's only going to solve it for 20 people, and it was like, was it? Do you have any of those stories or any examples where that might have happened?
2: Yeah, I think um, earlier in my career, I probably advocated for things that I didn't really understand compared to all of the other opportunities in the business. And because mm. I only had like three teams that handled three things, the most pressing team was the thing that I advocated for, but I didn't understand the other teams and what might've been most important there, which is the hard job of leadership is not only to like look across all of those teams and go, well, you guys get the extra person next month to hire. Sorry, all you other leaders who have problems, I'm gonna not address those and telling them why, showing, showing the why behind it. Um, if you tell people the why and they have the larger context, they won't like be angry with you, lose sleep over it. They understand you. They, you are hurt, they hear you and i think that i probably as a leader was had context missing where i would get frustrated and i'm like what do you mean you're not going to like build another team over here don't you understand like this is a <laughs> huge gaping hole in our business but i didn't know about all the other huge gaping holes so i would encourage anybody who gets frustrated because they feel like they're advocating but they're not being heard to go figure out like what are all the things that are being weighed Go have that conversation with your boss because it's rarely as personal as we feel like it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. It makes me think about um, is, is so is. Um, I guess you can call it like enterprise thinking or an organizational view and, and whatever um, rituals or whatever are in place. So it's not just the leaders who have that perspective, but, you know, from a help scout point of view, it's, it's also that the, the, the actual teams and the employees are also getting that. I, I mean, I know, um, you know, at least from Plural Side, I remember hearing about, you know, how often you guys were doing demos for the, for the entire company and and understanding exactly what was being solved and what, what was being built and, and, um, Is that a pretty critical component, would you say, to human-centered design? Or maybe um, that's kind of more um, indirect.
2: Is it a critical component to human-centered design? I I would say that it is because it is a quantitative research point. Mm. So if, if if myself and my team doesn't understand what the win-loss signals are that sales cares about and what tickets are coming in through customer support in addition to the work that we're doing, then we're missing part of the picture. We're missing some very rich data, which it's, it's a tall order to like connect the whole parts across a company. I mean, it is like the eternal struggle, but um, one thing that I've introduced into our um, company at Help Scout is something that I call the customer experience sync. And the customer experience sync means that the product team needs to create a pre-read about the things that are getting delivered and the discovery that's being done and what they're hearing and what we think might be the next things to be built and how everything's going. The customer support team, they are tabulating all of the tickets that are coming in and going, you know, X number of people wanted social, X number of people wanted SMS integrations, like what are all their signals? And then same with sales and account management, and I've gotten everybody to agree to <laughs> create these pre-reads and read each other's pre-reads and then come to the meeting and just talk about the things that stuck out, that, we, that are themes that we're seeing. But what my whole goal in that exercise is everybody feels like they're blind or like what they're advocating for is not getting solved, particularly customer support, who is he- literally talking to customers every day who are upset about something and passionately advocating for product to solve it, and then getting, the, the, you know, getting upset when we don't like get on it and get after it. But if we can all understand each other's worlds a little bit, and then I can tell the story of hey, here are all the things we're seeing across the company. Here's what we're gonna work on next because this seems to be the biggest thing, and here's what our revenue goals are for Q3. So if we release it at the end of Q2, we have a chance of hitting that target and like telling that story. Everybody would be like, "Oh yeah, no, totally makes sense." All right, well, we'll keep buckling down and answering those customers that are a little peeved, but we understand like why it's not coming. If we can get everybody there, um, it's a work is better for everybody. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I, I love that answer. Um, that's a great example too. Um, I think we're, we're, I think we're hitting time. Um, Spencer, did you, is there anything else that you wanted to ask or, or yeah, you want to,
1: you want to wrap up? No. Uh, well, we could go on forever, but this has been <laughs> really fascinating just to, to hear your journey and the new things that you're um, looking at. And uh, I think our listeners are going to love this conversation. A lot of food for thought things they can come, you know, go away with and, and try um, I guess I am interested to know, uh, but I, am going to break the, you, know, you said we, we like to ask more than one question. I'm going to do that. Um, I would love to know what you want to tackle in the future. So fast forward three years, five years, you know, beyond that, you know, what you, you come from industrial design, you come into software where you can, it can be scalable, reach millions of people, um, you know what type of problems do you want to tackle, like, longer term? Um, and um, I would say also, yeah, what do not people know about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we asked you that question in the form. Um, and how do people contact you? So I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I've broken all the rules with questions.
2: You might only get one answer because of that. No,
1: exactly. <laughs> go for, That's fine. <laughs> well, let's
2: see. Um, I'm trying to remember your first question. Um, what what's next for me? Uh, yeah, well, prob- I'm, I, yeah, I want to get like post Help Scout future future. Like I just got on the Help Scout train, and so I'll, i I want to really sit and like farm that land with them, and get us you know where we we want to go. Um, I part of the reason I joined Help Scout is because they are a certified B corporation. For any of the listeners that don't know what that is, I highly recommend you googling it. I personally be- believe it is the ethical form of capitalism there's a lot of talk about capitalism and whether it is inherently ethical or not, how might we as business leaders create companies that are not only good stewards to the shareholders and VC folks, but also are good to their employees, good to their communities, good to the world. And in my mind, that is the ultimate human centered design, which is the company at its core, not just your experience org. Um, And what does that look like? And, you know, I think that, um, that between that and my like interest in, in ethics in general, like I think someday I would love to be able to be able to steer a company um, from you know the executive chair and be able to do that and put together a leadership team of sales and marketing experience to be able to mm. to to take us where we need to go in the world. Um, so yeah, maybe I'd like to lead a company someday, but not yet. Today's not that day yet. <laughs> Unless somebody wants to give me the opportunity, wink,
1: (laughs) wink. Well, you know, that's why we find it so interesting to speak to Nate even in just saying, you know, what would you do if you could do anything? Uh, You know, if you maybe have the funding or at least the potential funding, like what problems would you yeah. Actually go and solve. Um, anyhow, no, maybe in a conversation for another time for another podcast with you on in, in the next few years, but, um, a- anything that people don't know about you, um, please share or how to contact you. Hmm.
2: Well, you can reach me uh, on Twitter. My handle is at Mariah Hay and what they don't know about me. <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm a pretty tried and true human centered design nerd. What can I say? Also, I I had mentioned earlier, I can, I'm an excellent fabricator. (laughs) I can build just about anything, even though I I don't really employ those skills anymore. Um, But it's kind of like, would be a fun party trick. If somebody is like, here, quick, weld me something. I could do it.
1: (laughs) So Awesome, (laughs) we're going to remember that. Nice one. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this. you know, we really appreciate your time and and just sharing insights and the way that you think. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will as well.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Swell Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Sign up to our newsletter at theswellpod.com and get in on the conversation through all major socials at The Swell Pod. We'll see you next time.